Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as News Director at New Lines Magazine, which is now a co-sponsor of Foreign Office. Uh, I am joined uh, today by Nathan Rooser. He is a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, he is also a mapmaker par excellence uh, of the war in Ukraine, which is kind of how I began following him in earnest, although um, uh, he'll get a little bit into his background. He, he sort of had an integral role in charting the internment of Uyghur and other Turkic Muslim minority populations in uh, Xinjiang, China. Uh, Nathan, it's great to have you on, mate. And I, I know we've been trying to do this. You're in Australia. It's 11 p.m. where you are. It's 9 a.m. where I am. So we finally managed to kind of meet somewhere in the middle here. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to, to open this up first by talking about your maps because they've become uh, a must um, consult resource, at least for myself. I know for quite a lot of other people as well uh, on the war in Ukraine. And, and just so my audience understands this, your maps are very precise. And unlike what a lot of mainstream media organizations, at least at, at least at the start of the conflict did, which is kind of bombard people with these sort of Gaussian blurs of red, suggesting the Russians were in control of vast swaths of Ukrainian territory, you tend to stick to a more kind of skeletal or um, linear view of, of things. Uh, you know, just because there's a Russian troop presence in such and such territory does not mean that the Russians are in control or even, frankly, uh, strongly contesting that area. And I, I just wonder, can you walk us through your methodology and why your maps are markedly different from other people's maps? Yeah, good day, Michael. Thank you for having me and thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, I think especially in the, the first week, of the first couple of weeks of the invasion, there was a very, um, there was a very disparate, there was very, there was a very solid difference between sort of how a lot of the organized news organizations were mapping this conflict and the realities on the ground. Hmm. I think that in many ways came down to the strategy of the Russian forces. So, for example, all reporting sort of indicates that when Russia went in here, they sort of expected this to just be a quick in, quick out, overthrow the government and sort of establish their, their sort of control over Ukraine. And so to achieve that sort of goal, they, in many ways, they just sort of sent a lot of their units thunder running into Ukrainian territory as far as they could go, as fast as they could go. Yeah. And trying to sort of set up bridgeheads or set up sort of areas where they could then use that as a um, launching pad for a lot of their operations to sort of overrun the major cities without much fighting. And so because of that, you sort of, especially, yeah, in the first couple of weeks, you sort of had sightings of Russian vehicles and Russian troops all throughout the country. Hmm. You sort of had them in the middle of Kiev. You had them in the middle of Kharkiv. You had them in sort of territory that they've never even had semi-control over since. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the maps, because of the sort of paucity of information on the ground, a lot of the maps that were being built were very much necessary were necessarily sort of based on these disparate sightings. Mm. So, for example, they would say that there were Russians sighted in this village, which means that the Russian force had reached that village, which then following that logic meant that the area behind it was at least in part controlled by Russian forces. Yeah. And I think in many ways that didn't match the situation on the ground. So, so especially early on, the way that I sort of prioritised mapping it was to simply just show the movements Mm. And sort of instead of attempting to show the territorial control, because I didn't think in general, I didn't think that in the open source information sphere, there was enough um, information out there to build a coherent picture of what areas were under control and which areas had just been passed through. Yeah. So instead, I sort of focused my mapping on showing the movements of troops, sort of showing the, the ways that these convoys were moving and sort of how they were sort of spreading through Ukraine in a lot of ways. And, and I think you, that sort of, in many ways, that was, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, do, do you rely just on news reports or social media, you know, kind of open source verification methods to say, okay, fine. So there's a Russian soldier in X settlement north of Kiev. Therefore, you know, I can at least point out that there, there is a Russian presence there, albeit not one that, that, as you say, suggests control, much less any kind of occupying force. Uh, or do you use satellite technology? I know that uh, Maxar has become the, the resource for most journalists kind of looking from above at, at you, what's happening on the battlefield in Ukraine. I mean, what's, what's sort of your daily 
rigmarole here? So I'd say there's a lot of different methods that are there are useful in sort of getting an idea of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Mm. Um, I'd say probably the most major one and what I would at least consider the most conclusive and evidentiary is sort of geolocated footage. And that's, we've seen, I think, multiple thousands of videos that have come out of um, Ukraine so far that have been geolocated, meaning people mm. have sort of tied that to a particular location on the ground. Yeah. And that sort of allows you to establish beyond any doubt that the sort of the forces that you see in that area are actually in that area and have control there and have sort of a presence there. Right. Um, so that's, that's probably the most, and of course that doesn't give you a comprehensive view of the front lines, but in areas where sort of news is pretty sparse to come by and there's not much sort of reporting. So for example, in the Kherson region or in um, sort of between, between Kherson and Mariupol, a lot of that front line is very poorly defined. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, a lot of the time sort of seeing geolocated sort of strike footage of um, Russian tanks being hit by artillery lets you establish that the Russians are in this particular village or they're not. Um, but beyond that, a lot of it also comes down to sort of reliable reporting. And I've sort of been in, I guess, been in this business for almost eight years now of sort of tracking um, conflict through social media. And in that time, you sort of start to build a pretty coherent picture of what sources are reliable and what can be trusted and what can't mm -hmm. so for example um so for example i when you look at um when you look at the, the ukrainian government statements they generally give you a general they get generally give you an idea and there's very few lies in those statements as far as i can tell mm -hmm. for what they, they will often omit certain gains that russia has made Likewise, there are often over-exaggerations by Russian sources that get information out. So one example of that is a town called Yampil, which is sort of near, near Izium, near um, a town called, but sort of between um, Kharkiv and Luhansk. Yeah. And so the Russian forces and Russian social media accounts announced that they sort of took that over, that town over on May 1st. Um, and then we had geolocated footage of Ukrainian forces in the settlement come out a few days later. And so that sort of proved that they hadn't actually taken that settlement. They had probably just right. reached the edges of it. And that's sort of, I changed my map to show and them this just is, sort of approaching you know, the settlement. It's, it's kind of fascinating too, because, you know, we do have a fire hose of just raw data and information coming at us on a daily basis. And, and certainly those, those first 72 hours when Kiev was thought to be basically a goner. Um, but even into the first few weeks of the war and the Battle of Kiev, you know, there was so much open source information, videos, images that needed to be geolocated, verified, and contradictory claims coming from either side, as you point out. But the maps I found at the early stages of the war um, were really quite significant in that um, when they showed falsely uh, or misleadingly, that the Russians had made more gains than they actually had done. Um, this, this, this was a sort of a hammer blow to Ukrainian morale, or certainly the international, you know, pro-Ukrainian contingent, which seems to be quite large, um, and also gave a false picture to Western governments that would otherwise be inclined to want to support Ukraine militarily and keep them holding the line, um, made them believe essentially that, you know, it's almost game over. So what I found very useful about your maps, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke, but, you know, you were much more, I think, precise in your methodology of, of you know, coming up with this stuff was that it, the picture was much more complicated and nuanced than it seemed otherwise. And I understand, you know, in, in media, um, we kind of rush to get the story out. We try to boil it down into as basic terms as possible for the layman, but it really is necessary to kind of show these um, sort of shades of gray. And, and you've actually done animation of your maps to give a sense of, of where the front line was as of February 24th, or I guess post 25th, 6th, 7th, and where it is today. And these animated maps are quite telling because they really do show a recession in Russian occupied territories. I mean, what do you, what do you make now of the Battle of Donbass, such as it is? I mean, it seems that, you know, there's credible evidence. I'm, again, I'm relying on you for a lot of it, that um, the Russians have been all but driven out of the, the Kharkiv region. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are pressing them 
pretty much up to the Ukrainian-Russian border in the Northeast. Um, there's allegations coming from the Institute for the Study of War that Russia might simply abandon the Izium axis and focus all of their energy more in the East. Um, wh wh where do you make, what do you make of where the, this thing is headed now? Yeah, so to sort of first touch on your first point, I think it's helpful mm. to sort of give an example of the, the East of Kiev. And that was, that was sort of the, the Bravari region which is um, sort of about 10 to 15 kilometers east of Kiev. And that, mm -hmm. that region had had a Russian presence in it since the very first days of the war. Yeah. So sort of in the very first days of the war, Russia had sort of pushed a very large amount of troops into that region and had managed to sort of establish this, this I guess you could call it a bridgehead mm -hmm. near the east of Kiev. Um, but the issue for the Russian forces there is that they hadn't, they didn't have any supply lines to it. And so a lot of the a lot of the maps had sort of shown that there was a sort of a transient Russian presence, had seen that there was a sort of transient Russian presence between the border and that position mm -hmm. and had mapped it as under Ukraine as, as under Russian control or as under Russian influence. Mm. But in reality, those those units were very much sort of stranded there, sort of being able to maintain their perimeter and maintain their control in sort of a set of a certain small area but they weren't really capable of doing any offensive action simply because there wasn't any supply into those t positions. Right. And it wasn't actually until sort of March 23rd that we started getting reports of Russia sort of more systematically setting up checkpoints, establishing control over these highways that lead there and sort of would be able to supply these um, Eastern push on Kiev, which, which never really had any offensive power. Mm. Um, but instead, what what the, what those checkpoints and that supply was doing was establishing cover for the for the um, withdrawal that happened a few days later. So it sort of shows that, that I guess in many ways the the ways in which the, what is happening behind the forward line of Russian troops is very complex and very nuanced. And why why sometimes and I think you can't blame media for it because media necessarily has a very small area to show a very simple map. Right. But um, some of those sort of simplified versions did have, as you mentioned, sort of real world implications into the morale of Ukrainian fighters and the sort of um, the, 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 the um, reaction of a lot of Western governments. Mm. Um, but sort of where we stand currently, I think, I think is a very difficult question to answer. And I, I'm definitely much more qualified to talk about what the situation is now compared to what it will be in a month. But I think it's fair to say that in the vast majority of the front, Russia doesn't have much offensive power left. You can see them sort of retreating pretty quickly from the Kharkiv region. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're seeing an imminent retreat from the Izium sort of pocket, but potentially just a shift in their primary focus to areas further west, further east, sort of encircling a smaller area of Ukrainian troops. But um. And I think it's fair to say that in the last few days, Russia has actually quite solidly committed to launching offensives in that area and sort of using the last of its offensive power to get whatever tactical gains it can. So, mm -hmm. for example, there was a town called Lubizne. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that was a pretty major town that had been fought over since quite early on in the war. Mm -hmm. And a couple of days ago, that, that fell to Russian forces. Same with um, a town called Popazna which yep. has been sort of on the, the Donbass contact line since 2014. Um, and it, it finally fell to Russian forces in the last week. So I think there is very much a concerted effort to sort of establish these tactical gains. But the issue is, I think a lot of these tactical gains are happening at, are happening at the same time as they call strategic losses. Right. So for example, you saw temporary tactical gains of them crossing the Donetsk River sort of in Luhansk region the other day where they sort of tried to get a company, probably, it was probably actually about a battalion, um, probably about a BTG's worth of equipment and men across the river to start encircling Russian forces. And they had tactical success, but after a while that, that sort of fizzled out and that, that, that um, attempted river crossing has been very costly for them and has probably made a couple of BTGs, which is their sort of unit of fighting, 
combat ineffective because of the sheer equipment loss. That I mean, it's it looks that like a, a complete graveyard of scrap metal around that bridge. Um, that yes. The, the Ukrainians blew up a pontoon bridge the Russians had constructed. And you know, as you say, they took out an entire BTG within the space of, of just several hours. And, and then when the Russians tried to retrieve some of their equipment, the Ukrainians bombed that too. <laughs> so, um, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, look, um, and I think from, go on. I was just going to say, I think, I think from the start, it's been quite clear that um, Ukraine's strategy, except for some, I think, quite botched um, early days in the South, I think there was a distinct lack of preparation in Southern Ukraine, which sort of saw the immediate losses of Kherson and some other major cities that haven't been able to be even close to recovered yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I think other than that, the Ukrainian strategy has been very much one of defense in depth, has been one of sort of trading space for time and sort of using that, those sort of um, staged withdrawals um, of key areas where they don't think they can no longer, where they don't think they can um, hold on to the positions any longer to simply grind down the, the offensive power of Russian forces. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we've seen from the start, and it was extremely effective in Kiev, where they sort of were withdrawing part, they were sort of very progressively withdrawing to the city, but in the process of doing that, were inflicting very heavy and, in the end, unsustainable losses on the Russian um, units there. Yeah. And I think that's sort of very much what we're seeing now. Well, they, they, that, you know, they will admit to you, I mean, Ukrainian military officers, that that is indeed the strategy, you know, allow the Russians in. Uh, it looks like Ukraine is retreating. It looks like they're losing ground. But the idea is get the Russians to stretch their already quite stretched supply lines and then attack them from behind um, and, and essentially encircle them, cut them off. Um, so, it, it, I, you know, I wonder um, if this is indeed the, the game plan for, for Donbass. I mean, clearly some heavy armor and equipment that has been promised and now delivered by the West, including... Um, uh, M777A2 uh, howitzer systems. We had last uh, last time on the show, um, James Rushton, who's kind of a weapons geek, who's been tracking this stuff. It seems like heavy artillery, um, long range, um, you know, weaponry, loitering munitions, these kinds of things are about to be put to use, if not already. And also, I, I'm sure you've seen the evidence that there was a, a BMP that blew up. And this is deep inside not just Russian-held territory, but territory that the Russians have held since 2014 uh, in, I believe, Donetsk. Um, and the, the idea is that this was blown up either by a landmine or a loitering, loitering munition or, I mean, essentially it was like an insurgent attack because the Ukrainians don't have any military presence in this area. So it seems like they're getting quite crafty at, at sort of sneaking in behind Russian positions and taking them out stealthily. Um, do you see any evidence of that in, in, in what you've been mapping? Yeah, not it's not so clear in what I've been mapping, but we've definitely been hearing very numerous reports of it. I, I, I would sort of, in a way, caution to, in the sort of um, the acceptance of a lot of these um, I, um, justifications for why they have been losing ground in the, in the same way that we see Russia sort of providing a lot of justifications for why their offensives have failed mm. i think it's very important to acknowledge that sort of both sides have been very much participant well especially i think ukraine has been very crafty and very successful in sort of shaping the media narrative around it so i think yep. there is necessarily the um need to sort of examine and question some of their their sort of broader strategic statements so for example some of the towns that have been lost recently i don't think can be chalked up for them saying, oh, this is this is going to be a trap for the Russian forces. Instead, I think it is sure. just them not being able to maintain those positions anymore. But we definitely saw that very often early on, especially when Russia was more concerned with getting deep into Ukraine than they were concerned with sort of establishing firm control. Mm -hmm. um, with regards to the with regards to the sort of insurgent attacks, I think it's been very clear that there is a heavy presence of sort of Ukrainian agents, I guess, for lack of a better term, in occupied territory. And in many areas, Russia hasn't necessarily been able to firmly stamp that out because their manpower is sort of already stretched on the front lines. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen a lot of targeted assassinations in Kherson city. We've seen sort of the sabotage of railway lines that lead up to the sort of front in Mariupol. 
we've seen that tank explosion and I don't know what caused that tank explosion, but it was definitely in area that sort of fell to Russian backed forces in the very first months of the 2014 conflict. Yeah. So it's been outside of Ukrainian hands. Yeah. I think you said since 2014 and it's only barely 10 kilometers from the Russian border. Mm. Um, so there is definitely an effort to strike the rear of Russian forces. And we've seen that in Izium as well with sort of the complete artillery shelling of various command posts and various, um, I guess, supply areas mm-hmm. that, that um, Russian forces haven't been able to adequately protect. For example, the um, air base outside of Kherson City, I think that's been shelled 13 or 14 times now. Yes. Now, when you look at the imagery, there's basically no equipment left there. Right. And the Russians just keep bringing stuff in. I mean, after their attack, they do nothing to, to sort of fortify themselves, protect themselves. They just send more stuff in. Um, I mean, um, I, I saw a dispatch in the Wall Street Journal. I forget what town it was in the east where uh, the Ukrainian commander said, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the Russians are zombies. They just keep coming and they just keep basically eating our artillery and our, our ammunition. Um, I mean, what what is the, the sort of, to your mind, and you know, I know perhaps you're not a, a Russian strategic analyst, but what is it that the Russians are up to here? Because it doesn't seem like they're, they're playing this very carefully or adroitly. I mean, it's just kind of, it's, it's become a bit of a meat grinder. They're just pouring in manpower and firepower without any thought or consideration for kind of long-term uh, strategy. Yeah, it's worth. It's probably worth noting that not in ev- it's it's not in every case that they're doing that. For example, mm-hmm. the the air base out of Kherson now is pretty much empty of mm-hmm. Russian equipment now, and they've pulled back to air bases in Crimea. But they've definitely sort of, in so many locations, just committed forces again and again to the area. Whether we're talking about that recent river crossing, right. or whether we're talking about the the Snake Island that has been hit sort of every day for the past however long by um Ukrainian missiles. Um, and I think, and of course, I'm not an expert in Russian strategic culture, and you're, you'd be much better off speaking to people, people that were. But my understanding of it is that it kind of represents the larger strategic problem that Russia has had, in that they are sort of the forces on the ground are being told to achieve these goals, which in turn end up being sort of unachievable with the resistance that Ukraine is able to put up and the, the sort of lack of equipment that sort of Russia is able to dedicate to that fight. Mm. Um, but these are still the goals that they very much have to reach and the goals that they have, have been set. So it's not acceptable for um, commanders to sort of not try and achieve these goals. And in many right. cases, I think that's sort of what you're seeing going down the, going down the ladder. So the, the war itself was sort of an unachievable strategic goal that was told to do it by Putin. And now mm. I think you're seeing at the company level or at the battalion level, sort of them being told to achieve these tactical results that are turning out to be extremely costly. But in many cases, I suspect it's, it's, it's um, better for the commander to have tried and achieved these goals and failed than to sort of go, hey, I'm not sure if this is the best idea. Right. And let me let me sort of back up a little bit and, and sort of get into your background here. I mean, you, you work for a think tank in Australia, but you've been studying conflict since 2014. And, and I want to talk to me a little bit about your work on the Uyghur genocide issue, because this has become, um, well, I mean, to my mind, it's not very controversial. I think there's a preponderance of evidence showing that you know this this population has been put in internment camps has been forced to you know uh, re-education programs sterilization etc cetera, etc cetera. It, it certainly to my mind meets the definition of genocide but you were um, kind of in, heavily involved in compiling the evidence for this right using presumably the same kind of methodologies that you you were just talking about with respect to Ukraine uh, but also satellite footage showing the things that the Chinese government said simply didn't exist. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because at New Lines, we, we, we've did a, a long study on the legal ramifications of, of using the term genocide with respect to this crisis. Um, we've also published an investigation at New Lines magazine about organizations that essentially deny that this is taking place uh, whilst 
defending the line coming out of Beijing. I mean, what, I mean, give us a sense of your, your analysis in that regard. Yeah, so from sort of my, my, my first, I guess, introduction into international relations, like my first year of uni, this is going back to 2014 now. Yeah. Um, but, but I've sort of been someone that always inherently views things through this sort of mapping lens. Mm-hmm. And sort of if it, if I can't understand it in the context of a map, it's, it's difficult for me to understand stuff. Or more, I I find it like it, that. That's sort of my method of learning through these through these maps in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so I've always sort of tried and you tried to sort of organize information in this sort of mapping mapping format and this graphical mapping cartographic sort of format, just for the sort of my own understanding and so that started with Syria sort of looking at satellite imagery looking at open source information to try and get much more comprehensive ideas of where the battle lines actually were Mm -hmm. um and so that then sort of in 2017 and 2018 when the first reports of this this um widespread sort of industrial scale um internment program for Uyghurs in in Xinjiang started appearing that that was sort of the lens that I naturally started viewing that through as well. And so from that end, I started sort of looking at the work that was already being done and sort of building on it myself in trying to map as many of these detention facilities as possible and sort of trawling through satellite imagery and whatever evidence else I could find. So for example, one of the things that was really useful was looking at nighttime light imagery and finding parts of the desert that were previously dark but have been lit up by the construction of these um, detention camps and prisons. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of how, so I've always, I guess, been a heavy proponent of using satellite imagery and open source information to sort of get an enhanced understanding of what's happening on the ground in areas that journalists and researchers can't necessarily reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was just sort of a continuation of that into the, the massive human rights abuses that are happening in Xinjiang and sort of trying to look at the physical transformation of that region of China um, from prior to the crackdown to now. And it, it's um, honestly shocking the scale of sort of residential demolitions that we've seen, the scale of these internment camps that have appeared, the scale of the destruction of public space, all of which is sort of visible for anyone, in fact, if they want to, to go on Google Earth and look at look at towns like Kuchka or towns like um, Kashka and see the, the difference. Um, but yeah, and so it sort of was very much an attempt to sort of systematically get an idea of the scale of these crimes. So previous to my work, a lot of what was out there was that we had firm evidence of certain numbers of camps, say 30, 40, 50, 60 different camps that had been evidenced through satellite imagery or construction tenders or a number of other methods. And sort of what I wanted to do was build that into a comprehensive idea so that we can get the, the scale of these abuses rather than just sort of affirming that they are happening, sort of start working out how big of a um, how big of an impact they're having on society. Mm. And so, for example, with those um, detention camps, I, I've ended up finding about 385 different detention facilities across Xinjiang since 2017. And so when you sort of run the numbers, that turns out to be about one camp for every 35,000 Uyghurs or other Turkic minorities in Xinjiang, which sort of so, shows the scale. In fact, if, if each of these camps support about a thousand people on average, which doesn't seem at all out of the realm of possibility looking at the satellite imagery. That's about 3% of Uyghurs that are, that are locked up. And so that, that's sort of how I've been trying to establish this, this um, understanding of how, of the scale of a lot of these crimes using, using satellite imagery mostly. And did you study cartography at university? I mean, is that your your specialty? Because it seems like you, you approach everything from, as you said, the point of view of if, if you can put it on a map, you get a better comprehensive portrait of what's taking place. Um, not not that not like specifically. I've definitely always been using cartography and sort of GIS techniques and remote sensing techniques as part of my work, but it, it's not, it, it's very much been sort of self-directed learning and sort of 
doing that because that's how I personally understand it rather than sort of, and, and honestly, the in terms of sort of the humanities application of GIS, there's the, that's not really a thing that many universities or many educational facilities do. Mostly when you look at GIS work, remote sensing work, it's very environmentally focused. Yeah. So it's stuff like um, vegetation health and classifying sort of land cover and land use and stuff like that, which is interesting. And I do enjoy doing that, but it, there's, there's very little sort of guided information on how to sort of build yourself this um, geo geospatial perspective of open source intelligence. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me because uh, there was an article just today published that the US intelligence community is now having to reckon with open source intelligence as sort of a, a pathfinding new field um, in the in the business of, of data collection. And everybody's got their own sort of niche, right? You've got Oryx blog, which tracks mm, destroyed or captured or abandoned weaponry on both sides, the Ukrainian and the Russian side, and has become, as, as far as I can tell, the basis for a lot of government assessments. Uh, ben Wallace, the UK defense secretary, um, seems to be sort of feverishly clicking on refresh for Oryx blog, given recent remarks he gave in London, in which he even referred to the, quote, coke cage, which is the slats that the Russians put on their tanks to deflect Javelin and NLAW anti-tank systems, which are as about as effective as I've just described them as being. Um, and you, you, got, you have this sort of cartographic sense of open source. Obviously, Elliot Higgins and the Bellingcat team, you know, do their data collection differently. It seems that, you know, certainly the Syria conflict, which, you know, I covered myself as a reporter trying to use open source, but also doing the shoe leather journalism, going out into the field and, you know, the, the Turkish border or in one instance in Aleppo in 2012. This is, um, you know, we're in sort of a, 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 a rather transformational environment um, with a combination of technology, but as you say, kind of using different points of approach to understand closed off areas of the world, what's taking place there. I mean, this, this sort of brilliant observation about seeing things lit up in the, at night in the desert, knowing that something is being constructed there. Um, do you see that, that the future of open source intelligence gathering as being fundamentally the, the ultimate fact-checking mechanism, not just for journalists such as myself, but for governments, for NGOs, civil society organizations that, you know, compile reports on human rights abuses, humanitarian catastrophes, but in many cases, at least in the past, you know, have had to rely on personal testimony, which is, of course, because you're dealing with human beings, highly susceptible to error of omission or misremembrance or outright deception and, and disinformation. But, you know, maps don't lie um, if they're done right. Satellite footage doesn't lie if it's not been doctored. The things that you're dealing in, these are, this is, this is empirical uh, evidence. Um, where do you see this whole field headed, given your, your background? Yeah, I think, I think in many ways, open source intelligence is becoming this very important aspect of most investigations. Um, and I don't think in any way it sort of replaces the on-the-ground research that people are able to do, nor does it sort of provide this, um, I guess, this this um, unclouded, completely comprehensive and clear and honest perspective of the world. There is still so, for example, there's still many ways in which the same information and the same open source information can be interpreted. You can see the reliability that I put in certain claims is different to the reliability that especially pro-Russian mm -hmm. um, mappers would put into other claims. And even though we're doing the same work using the same claims, there are quite different conclusions on how we sort of stack all the evidence up. Um, but I think open now, when you say that, though, just, important. just to pause you when, you, when you say that, we're talking about people who they, they have a bias. I mean, pro-Russian map makers, I could imagine their bias being so outsized as to cloud some of their more forensic judgments. Are you talking about people who, who actually provide evidence for their claims and simply come to different determinations or, or interpret that evidence differently from yourself? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about like RT or channel uh, one kind of stuff. We're talking about people who you know, support Russia, but they know what they're talking about, yeah? 
Yes, yeah, so nothing, nothing is quite not jobby as RT, right. but sort of the way in which sort of I can examine a statement coming out of the Ukraine, the Russian military, um, the Russian MOD, and sort of go, I, I, I doubt some of these claims. I would, I will wait before I see um, confirmation before I put them in. Mm. Other people will do the same with the Ukrainian claims, for example. And I think, of course, the perfect balance is. Where possible, I think I try and strike where that balance is, but there is certain different interpretations that reasonable people can get from the same information based on their sort of pre-existing biases. And I think that in, in many ways is a very important fact to acknowledge and sort of confront with yourself if you want to be pursuing this open source intelligence things. You see a lot of sort of, um, you see a lot of sort of anonymous um, OSINT aggregators on Twitter that I think in many ways are less helpful than they are helpful because they will often repeat claims that I don't think stand up to scrutiny and sort of um, um, give platform to some of those claims. But they're not trying to do a bad job. It's just a matter of sort of a different interpretation. And sort of, in many ways, OSINT as this, this very hip sort of form of study or thing that a lot of people want to do, but not necessarily, people don't necessarily understand the biases that can sometimes go into it in the way that sort of you need to be aware of the challenges. So for example, one example that I'll pull up actually, maybe two examples if I have time, mm. is when I was looking at Myanmar, when I was trying to sort of map a lot of the Myanmar um, destruction that had happened in Rohingya villages yeah. in, in um, the past, I was looking at satellite imagery and I saw these weird things that appeared. Um, it was years after the conflict had happened, but they looked like mortar pits that were sort of dug up outside of every town. And I sort of started questioning, going, what is this? This looks like sort of active military action happening in these Rohingya villages years after the genocidal violence. Mm -hmm. But looking into it a bit further, it was eventually became clear that that was sort of how certain farmers had been stacking their, their um, rice and their wheat crops to let it dry. Mm. It happened to look superficially from the air, a lot like mortar pits. Um, a similar thing happened in Ethiopia, um, where when I, when I was looking at a region around sort of Mekele, which is the Tigray region in the north, I was looking at satellite imagery of there, and it looked like there was just a blanketing of um, artillery impacts. But in the end, that turned out to be how their sort of agricultural practice had, yeah, had been drying that same crop. Yeah. So I think in many ways, I guess it's important to understand what the baseline normal is and understand that you will be more naturally inclined to see what you're looking for. Um, and so, for example, in Xinjiang, for me, that's been very important to make sure I properly interrogate each of the buildings and I go, this looks like a internment camp to make sure that it actually is. And I'm not just looking for the things that would say it was an internment camp. Um, and I think that applies to the US as well, like you've seen a lot of evidence of, I, th I think the, the absolutely tragic and horrible um, airstrike that killed that family in Kabul last year, that wasn't anything malicious. What it was, was drone operators being trained to look for armed soldiers, armed fighters, seeing something that a civilian was doing and looking at it through the lens of, I have been trained to find soldiers, I've been trained to find these armed positions and that's what he found. Well, that's what they found. Um, similar stuff with the underestimation of the civilians that were leaving the Hajin pocket in Syria. They, it was clear from anyone that looked at satellite imagery that there were a lot more civilians there than the US intelligence was suggesting. But I think because all of their ISR assets and all of their sort of remote sensing assets were looking for ISIS positions, they were missing the civilian life behind it. Mm. Um, so that is, I think I've gone a bit quite off topic from your question. So well, you, no, you, you, actually, was. you actually haven't because that, that is kind of at the heart of my question, you know, how OSINT and how the work that, that people like yourself do can better educate and inform um, U.S. intelligence and, and not just U.S. intelligence, I mean, the intelligence community at large and militaries such that they can avoid um, civilian casualties when, when waging war. Um, no, yeah, I mean, and I think, yeah. I think sort of, I think um, that Kabul, Kabul example was actually quite illustrative because it was very much in many ways um, reporting and open source intelligence that let that be exposed as the civilian casualty that it was. And I think in many ways having that, I guess, democratization of access to 
a lot of this information, this geospatial information, this open source information puts a lot of these claims to scrutiny and allows anyone to scrutinize them. And I think, of course, any official claim should be scrutinized. And so I, I, I would say that the, the international community would be much better placed now to sort of combat and scrutinize the, the, the claims that the US used to invade Iraq in 2003. Mm. I think if the, the US tried to make similar claims now, there would be a much bigger body of evidence that the open source community would be able to say, saying that this looks less like, like our assessment differs quite significantly from what the US assessment is. Yeah. And then that would in turn put pressure on the US to sort of explain why its interpretation is different to what the open source community is concluding. Yeah, but you would think, though, I mean, coming back to your earlier point about mm, same set of facts, different interpretations, there are certain things that have been um, reported largely relying on open source intelligence. I mean, the New York Times Visual Investigations team, for instance, does an excellent job. It's won numerous awards, including Pulitzer Prizes. One of the things that they did early on um, in their remit was reconstruct the Duma chemical weapon attack, yeah, um, simply using ballistic trajectory and and I think it, it, they made a kind of three-dimensional model of a house where the alleged uh, canister of um, chlorine was dropped and they, they concluded this can only have come from the sky, which immediately implicates the Assad regime or pro-Assad forces because the rebels, the opposition clearly don't have an air force. And yet, in spite of that kind of meticulous reconstruction, there's still people who will say this never happened or it was staged or it was indeed the rebels. Um, there's a whole controversy about so-called whistleblowers from the OPCW who have uh, insisted that it, it can't have been a chemical attack or can't have been the use of chlorine or whatever. Um, so it doesn't seem like, you know, open source whilst as a tool to help get at the truth, it doesn't seem like it's doing much to help us have any kind of consensual understanding of what that truth is. And to, to even complicate things further, you know, it's people want evidence, they want documentary proof. But reporting, much like intelligence, is often dealing with people, relying on sources, using your gut, your instinct, your judgment. Um, you know, I mean, the to, to, to give one example of something that we've discussed on this show quite a lot, the GRU Taliban bounties allegation, which was very controversial. Um, people say it's been debunked. It really hasn't been, it's still contested. And there's a dispute actually within or between two intelligence agencies, the CIA and the NSA. The NSA is looking at the same intercepts I'm sure the CIA is looking at, but arriving at different conclusions. The CIA probably has run human sources who are telling them things, uh, not just from the Taliban side, but from the Russian side and possibly from within the GRU. So again, it's, you get into this kind of murky terrain where you could look at satellite footage, you can look at things uh, and, and, and sort of creatively come up with explanations for them, and yet people still cannot find common ground. They do not agree. Um, and that has wide implications, not just for making a case, for instance, to go to war, such as in Iraq, but how to wage war or what, what, what sort of responsibilities or culpabilities um, you know, might entrain from, from these kinds of investigations. So we're still in this weird, and I don't think there's ever going to be a, a, a satisfactory answer to this, right? I mean, you, you're going to make your maps. People are going to say, oh, I, I, I quibble with that little line in, you know, Northeast Ukraine. How did you arrive at that? And you'll give your explanation and they'll have a different set of explanations themselves. So we're still in, I don't know, epistemological disorder, even with all this new technology. Yeah, I think in many ways that's a very important discussion to have as well. In that I think another example is sort of how successful China's campaign of denying human rights abuses in Xinjiang has been. Mm. I think, it, and I think a lot of that, when you whether you mention the sort of Duma chemical weapons or the thousands of chemical, the hundreds or thousands of chemical weapons that Assad did before that in Syria, mm -hmm. um, I think it comes down to because there is this. I guess, democratization of access to information and perspectives, mm -hmm. everyone is able to build up their own biased view if, if they don't sort of check their biases and make sure that they're aware of them. And you, you see the same with QAnon sort of saying, 
like the the a lot of the call thing in QAnon is to do your own research, right? Which means in in practice means do your own research in these very biased forums that give you a very biased answer and build up a very biased worldview. Um, but I think, and I I don't know who was the first person to coin this term. I certainly wasn't. I think it may have been Vipin Narang. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he used the term implausible deniability, which I think is very crucial in how to understand a lot of how this disinformation spreads. Because there is sort of a very comprehensive evidence base for stuff like Assad's chemical attacks or for stuff like Xinjiang um, re-education camps and human rights abuses or stuff like war crimes in Ukraine. There's sort of a solid evidence base that I think no reasonable person could really dispute however um a lot of people that sort of peddle in disinformation whether it is those chemical weapons truthers or whether it's the chinese government um sort of try and do this implausible deniability where they sort of build a counter narrative that doesn't stand up to scrutiny but it sort of gives you enough of a crumb that if you are biased in a way that you would want to believe that that counter narrative it gives you enough of a crumb to, to sort of trick yourself into saying this is this is my assessment of it based on this sort of crumb of information whether that's misinformation or whether it's just um sort of biased reporting such as like china's reporting out of xinjiang mm. but i think in many ways yeah it, it sort of gives people that uh pre pre um that have this desire to see one side or the other already it gives them enough evidence to sort of build that worldview on and i think going back to the xinjiang example i think that's very important to the international reaction to xinjiang um the evidence is out there and i think i don't think anyone many people listening to your podcast would dispute the the findings that um me and journalists and human rights researchers around the world have come to but for a lot of countries that have sort of an inherent distrust of the West because of sort of their colonial history or because of sort of stuff like the Iraq war or even the Libyan war um, and people that have strong and governments that have strong business ties to China that don't want what's happening in Xinjiang to be happening. Right. It allows the ruling class there to sort of latch onto this, this implausible deniability that they're, that, China is showing this this school, which proves there's no camps, although it, it doesn't, but it sort of gives them enough of a crumb to sort of build, in some cases, build policy on this um, implausible deniability. There's also, I mean, something broader in the culture as well. I mean, and, and severe mistrust in institutions, be they governmental or journalistic. And one tends to psychologically transfer that mistrust across the entire swath of, of institutions, right? So if the New York Times screws up a story on Monday and it reports something quite accurately on Wednesday, inherently there's gonna be at least a sizable percentage of the population that simply does not believe they got it right. You know, um, as you, 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 you brought up the Iraq war, clearly the reporting on that largely driven by leaks coming from the Bush administration was very flawed. Um, and the media has been atoning for it in one way or another for 20 years now. Um, and there's this, this, I mean, as you know, disinformation as opposed to misinformation. Misinformation is you, you almost have a good faith error in, in recycling or retailing uh, factual inaccuracies. Disinformation has a more malevolent design because it is cooked up to deceive, but really more not to persuade somebody to believe something, but just to sow so much skepticism and doubt that people simply don't believe anything. Um, they, they have no, again, no consensual basis for agreement of what the facts are. And I think the difficulty, whether it's, you know, Uyghur genocide, Duma chemical weapons use, Bucha, which has become another kind of, you know, breeding ground for conspiracy theorists and denialists, war crimes and atrocity denialists, um, you know, there's always an incentive for people to say that can't be right. That's, that's the official line. If the US government especially affirms it, it must be untrue. Um, and unfortunately, you, you would, one would hope, you know, open source has the benefit, unlike intelligence, of showing its work, right? I mean, you, you, you dial up Bellingcat and you can see how Christo Grozev goes about unmasking GRU assassins. He tells you how he did it. And still, 
um, perhaps because it's complex or perhaps because nobody wants to think or nobody in certain quadrants of the far right and the far left would like to believe that Vladimir Putin's intelligence officers are going around the world novichucking people they don't like or that they consider to be enemies of the state. There is still this kind of grinding sense of no, it's it's all lies, it's all falsehoods because it doesn't serve our ideological interests. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, interestingly with Ukraine, and we, I mean, this is, uh, I suppose, a subject for another show or, or another hour that we could spend talking about it. There does seem to be more international solidarity and international agreement on what is taking place, certainly more than I expected at the start of this conflict. I mean, this was kind of embodied in the... Um, the UN vote condemning the invasion, um, including votes that were cast by countries that I would have assumed would have lined up behind Russia and they, that haven't done. Um, but anyway, uh, Nathan, listen, it was, it was great to finally talk to you. Uh, I've been meaning to interview you for a while. Um, and I wanna thank you again for all the phenomenal work you've been doing, um, not just in Ukraine, but also in China and uh, Myanmar and Ethiopia. And um, where can we, find your work. I mean, I, I know you from Twitter, basically. <laughs> it's what you say in the 21st century. I know you off Twitter, but where can we find your work? You, you publish, I presume, reports based on the stuff that you tweet out at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for having me and thank you for accepting what I think turned into a surprisingly epistemological chat. Um, <laughs> it gets rather I, philosophical I, around these parts sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you interview someone at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I, I, I would probably just quickly add to that, those last points that you made. I think it's that, that, that idea of erosion of trust in mainstream news organisations and institutions is something that is very much need, needs to be sort of acknowledged and combated by a lot of these groups. Like, for example, we don't need to go back to the 2003 Iraq war to see ways in which trust in the New York Times would be eroded. For example, mm -hmm. even this week, a lot of people have had genuine um, criticism of their coverage of how sort of the, the Palestinian journalist was killed yep. the other day. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I, I can very much imagine that being used in the future as a reason to show that the New York Times has biased on their on legitimate reporting and investigative reporting that will then be used to misbelieve that. And I think that's something that a lot of news organisations haven't really reckoned with yet. And I don't know if there's an easy answer to it, but I think there definitely needs to be more of a conversation, more of a thought of how they can sort of have this impartiality or at least this assessed impartiality more. Um, but yeah, no, thank, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, a lot, of my, a lot of my research, a lot of the reports that I've done, especially on Xinjiang, have been published by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So I've done... Um, and quite a big interactive map and report looking at the detention infrastructure itself. I've also looked at the data about plummeting birth rates and the data about cultural destruction. And there's a lot of, there's a good sort of body of evidence of how, um, how human rights, how, how extreme the human rights abuses there are. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, I generally do a lot of my sort of not project work on Twitter and just sort of post stuff that I find interesting when I can. So otherwise you can look there and see if you can find anything interesting. You can't leave without dropping your Twitter handle because I, I won't remember it. So you better do. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's um, N, the letter N, the letter R, the letter G, N-R-G-8000. Pretty straightforward. That's like an Atari avatar from 1983. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, anyway. I think my dad made it when I was like seven. Oh, well, God, now you make me feel really old that you're, you're <laughs> seven years old and there was Twitter. Uh, anyway, on that um, shiny note, um, thanks for coming on, Nathan Rooster. You, this is Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next week. <laughs>